Welcome to Specs Speak Science, the scientific podcast hosted by a rotating cast of chemists and industry experts. From highlighting the hidden chemistry in our everyday lives to discussing relevant industry topics, Specs Speak Science looks to deliver informative content to the scientific community. With that, please enjoy this installment of Specs Speak Science. Hi, welcome to today's podcast. Today we're going to talk about chromatography, branch of uh, spectroscopy, and it has to deal with color. So if you think about the word chromatography, it literally means writing with light. So a little history. The first chromatography was performed on uh, plants, and it was the dividing up of the different uh, plant compounds in about 1900. So we've been working with chromatography for a hundred or so years. So it is uh, the science, like I said, of writing with light. In the 1940s and the 1950s, Martin and Singe won a Nobel Prize in 1952 for their work with chromatography and partition chromatography and separation. By 1960s and the 1970s, you started getting instruments for chromatography, specifically the gas chromatography system started out first. And in 1973, the first commercial chromatographic system, the, the GC, the HPGC, came out 1973. Now, the basis of chromatography is partition chemistry. You'll have a mixture, and then that mixture will be put into some sort of mobile phase. And then there's a stationary phase involved, and your mixture will then separate up from the mobile phase through the stationary phase into different bands. If you're looking at classic chromatography or, or classic liquid chromatography where you're using uh, TLC plates, thin layer chromatography plates or other things like that, you have a vial or a vessel that has your mobile phase. You have your plate that's coated with a stationary phase. You put the dots of your mixture that you're trying to separate on your TLC plate or on your plate, and then you place that into your mobile phase, and you watch as the different components separate out over time, and they will separate usually out into different color splotches or bands that can then be measured. If you're thinking more of instrumental chromatography, you're thinking more about HPLC, you know, liquid chromatography. And that, you also have your mobile phase. That's the, the solvent that moves through the system. And then you have your stationary phase. That is the phase that stays put. Those are, that's what's in the column itself. So what you do is you have that same mixture. You pass it through in the mobile phase, through the stationary phase, and it partitions back and forth between the mobile phase and the stationary phase until it comes out the other end of the column in different uh, aliquots or different bands, and then those are measured by a detector. So for partition chromatography, that means you have multiple phases, and those phases are the traditional stationary phase that we talked about, the one that kind of stays put, the stationary phase. Then you have the mobile phase, the phase that moves. For your stationary phase, it could be a liquid stationary phase. It could be a gel. It could be a solid, a semi-solid. For your mobile phase, it could be gas or it could be liquid. That's where we get things like the GC or the gas chromatography or LC, the liquid chromatography, based on the mobile phase. Then you have your paper or your thin layer chromatography, your TLC. And of course, our instrumental methods, our LC and our GC methods are all coming from that as well. 
The basic liquid chromatography system, the modern systems, have some sort of solvent system. So you have your reservoirs, your degassers, your mixing chambers. You have your pump systems. You can either have a binary pump. That means it pumps on two channels. Or you can have a quaternary pump, which it pumps on four channels. For most uh, chromatographers, the, the binary pump is sufficient. You can do acetonitrile and water, or you can do methanol and water. So you usually can do two different solvents at the same time, and you can build gradients or isocratic methods from it. Sometimes you might need a, a quaternary pump. That's if you need to pump more than uh, two or three different solvents at a time into your system. So then you can divide it up. The binary pumps tend to be a little bit more powerful. They only have to pull from two channels. The quaternary pump has a little bit uh, less pressure behind it, a little less force behind it because it has to divide that uh, amongst four channels. Then you have your injector. You can either have a manual injector or an injector port or you can have an auto sampler. And most uh, chromatographers nowadays have the auto samplers so that the samples are, you know, put them in the vial, you load up your auto sampler and then you load a program that will pick up those vials and deliver excuse me, deliver them to the injector so that they can be run through your, your system. Then you have a column compartment. This is your compartment where the column is kept. It could be heated. It could be cooled. You could have a bunch of switching valves. You can do things like uh, LC-LC where you have different types of columns that are together, or GC-GC, two-dimensional GC, two-dimensional LC. That's where you have uh, two different types of columns or two different phases of columns that are coupled in sequence, and you have uh, separation in two dimensions. And then coupled to your column, you have a detector of some kind. It could be a UV-Vis detector. It could be a mass spectrometer. It could be an RID detector. So you have a, a bunch of different choices for the detector. Finally, you get your data. Most of the time you'll say, oh, well, I have a cro chromatograph or I have a chromatogram. Well, the chromatogram is the actual piece of paper with the chart on it. That's your chromatogram. Your chromatograph is the instrument that makes that graph. So your chromatograph, if you are old enough to remember plotters, would be hooked up to your, your GC or your LC system, and the, the data that was collected from the detector would be plotted out on a plotter with plotting paper, with the, the grid paper, and you would have to go and, and take the peaks and draw lines through the baseline, and you would have to calculate the number of, of boxes or area under each of your peaks. So the actual plotter was your chromatograph, and your uh, plot that would come off of it would be your chromatogram. And then it all leads to some sort of waste system or some inline other processing system. One of the first things I want to talk about when we think about uh, HPLC are solvents. We think of our mobile phases. So there are different types of solvent, and for HPLC or LCMS, you want to use grades of solvents that are meant for those types of applications. You wanted to use LC grade or HPLC grade or LCMS grade because they've been filtered. They are put through submicron filters to take any debris out of the, out of the solvent so they don't clog up your, your system. You also have uh, LCMS solvents, which have low ionic impurities. So you want to, to use those type of solvents. You don't want to just use any grade of solvent when you're doing HPLC or LCMS. And then the types of solvents depend on what type of, of chemistry your analytes are. Do you need uh, nonpolar solvents? Are you doing uh, reverse phrase chromatography? Are you doing 
normal phase chromatography. Those are going to determine what type of solvents. So your solvents can be broken up into roughly three categories, hydrocarbon-based solvents, oxygenated solvents, or your halogenated solvents. For your hydrocarbon solvents, you're thinking of things like your aromatics, uh, your aliphatic uh, hydrocarbon solvents, your hexanes, your cyclohexanes, and things like that. Your oxygenated, those are your alcohols, your ketones, your aldehydes, your acetones and things like that, your ethers. And then for the halogenated, those are your chlorides, like your methylene chloride or your bromides or fluorides. So your oxygenated and your halogenated solvents are your polar solvents. And your hydrocarbon, your chains, and your aromatics are your nonpolar solvents. The polar solvents, you could have protic solvents, amphiprotic solvents, or aprotic solvents, whether or not they can donate protons or, or not to your chemical interactions. One of the important concepts for solvents, especially in HPLC, is the polarity of those solvents. How polar are those solvents? The most polar solvent that most of us use in, in LC and LCMS is water. And that has a polarity index of 10.2. Then as you go down the, the chain to acetonitrile, you go at to 5.8, you get to ethanol, you're at down to 4.3. And then you start getting into our normal phase solvents, things like our dichloromethane at 3.1 and our alkanes uh, and cyclohexane at 0.1. So anything with a low polarity index, like 4 or under, are more normal phase solvents. And the ones that are uh, above four, those tend to be polar solvents, and those are more for reverse phase chromatography. Now, if you mix solvents, you can actually get partial uh, polarity, or you can get mixed polarity, and you can calculate that by the percentage or the amount of, of each solvent and its polarity index. For example, if you're doing 50-50 uh, acetyl nitrile and water, you could take the polarity index of water, which is 10.2, and you can multiply that by 0.5 for 50%, and that will give you a polarity index of 5.1. And then you do the same thing with acetonitrile, which is 5.8 times 0.5 for 50%, and that gives you 2.9. And then when you add them together, the overall polarity then, or the mixed polarity for that particular 50-50 mixture, is then 8. Then you also have to consider are your solvents miscible? Meaning, can they mix with each other? Can they coexist in the same bottle together? If you have polar solvents, and there's the, the old saying, like, likes, like, if you have polar solvents, they're usually pretty happy together. If you have nonpolar solvents, they're pretty happy together. But it's very difficult to mix sometimes on nonpolar and polar solvents. You would not be mixing uh, cyclohexane and acetonitrile, for example. They, they're they not going to mix real well. You're not going to mix water and cyclohexane or uh, dichloromethane, methylene chloride. So you're going to want to know what the solvent miscibility of the solvents you are using for your experiment are. You also are going to want to think about what type of buffers need to be used with your mobile phase in order to keep your system stable. You want to make sure that your uh, buffers are going to keep the, the pH fairly constant. And if you're going to be doing LCMS, you don't want to add any buffers that are going to create salts or phosphates that are going to then um, suppress your ionization. So you're going to want more of the formates and the ammonium compounds for LCMS. You're also going to want to know how volatile those solvents are because those solvents become waste eventually. They all lead to that waste container, what we said. So if you have solvents that have high evaporation rates, 
things that have very low boiling points, like the dichloromethane or the acetone or the methanol, you're going to want to be aware that there are health hazards. And that waste container being open in your lab is going to give you uh, fumes. I know in some previous podcasts we've talked about our vape lock systems at Specs, and this is a, a system that can actually lock in some of these solvent vapors and keep them away from the user. And in fact, we're doing some experiments in our lab right now with our vape lock systems, and we're, we're going to be testing how much of an improvement some of our vapor uh, coming off of our containers is going to improve with our vape lock systems. So you're going to have to tune in to podcasts in the future to hear how our experiment is going over the next few months. Let's talk a little bit now about columns. If you have a column, I, I know I've changed many an LC column over my years as a chromatographer. One of the things that I always forget to do, and I've only started doing within the, the last you know five or six years or so, is I've started writing the dates on my columns. And it sounds like such a silly thing, but you, you sometimes you forget. You take the column out, you, you might write the date on the box that you started to install it, but you didn't write the date on the column, so then the box gets lost, and then you're like, well, how old is this column? So I take a Sharpie now, and I actually write the date on the column. And what I also do is, it's going to sound silly, but it works for me, I draw an arrow in the direction that the flow that I've installed the column for the flow to go in. Now, some column manufacturers will actually put that arrow already on the column to show you the direction of flow. But if they don't have it there, I draw the arrow. So I know that on, let's say, today's date, I installed this column and I installed it in this particular direction. So then if I need to, I can switch direction to back flush it. Or if I uh, uh, want to see if, if I can change the direction of the column to get a little bit more wear out of the column, life out of the column, then I know at least how it was first installed. So that's just a little tip for columns. As we've been talking, if you're doing HPLC, you're probably either doing reverse phase chromatography, and that's about 80 or so percent of the chromatography that's done by LC right now, or you're doing normal phase chromatography. Now, reverse phase, you have polar mobile phases and a nonpolar stationary phase. So you have that C8 or that C18 column, and you're using methanol, acetonitrile, and water, and things like that as your mobile phase. For normal phase chromatography, you're using nonpolar mobile phases and you're using polar stationary phases. So your stationary phases are those polar aminos and, uh, and other stationary phases, and you're using then the hexane and the THF and, and other things that are more nonpolar mobile phases. If you ever looked at the inside of a column and you got up close with a microscope, you would see that you have a bunch of different parts to your column. First of all, when we talk about the, uh, the diameter of a column, we're usually talking about the inner diameter of the column. So when you have a column that has a, a 4.6 or a 2.1, they're talking about the inner diameter of that column. Then there's the size of the, of the particle, because inside that column you have that stationary phase, and they're usually spheres. There are usually particles of, of silica, a silica backbone, and that's where your stationary phase is attached to, uh, to these spheres. And on these spheres, there are pores. And then you'll see that there's usually a measurement of particle size and a usually a measurement of pore size. What's important, though, is what's the void volume? What's the space uh, between the pores and the space between the spheres? That becomes an important calculation when we start to talk about dwell volume or zero dwell volume and things like that. 
The dwell time is the time it takes for an unresolved peak to pass from the injector through the column and then come out on the other side of the detector. An unretained peak will have a very short dwell time. There will be no dwell time whatsoever. And then the void volume is the volume of all that space we talked about, all that interstitial space between the pores and the different uh, particles. Then pore volume is that's the percent of volume that of space that's actually filled in a column. And it's usually about 70% of the column is, is filled. There is a, a very long calculation. And if you go to our website and look at our HPLC webinar, you'll be able to see that there's a calculation for it, which is a function of column length and pore volume and column diameter. But you can also refer to kind of a handy-dandy chart, which gives you the basic um, times and volumes for the different dwells, the dwell times. So if you're using a fairly large column, like a large diameter, like a 4.6, and maybe it's a 150 millimeter long column, you have a fair amount of, of void volume. Now, if you're running at a half a mil a minute, that means that you have 3.5 minutes before that peak, that unretained peak, gets from the injector all the way to the column and then to the detector. So anything that that comes out on your detector between zero and 3.5 minutes is not a real peak. It's a ghost peak because it hasn't had time to get from your injector through your column into your detector. So there are some charts and some calculators where you can put in your diameter, your length, what uh, flow rate you're running at, and it will tell you exactly how long uh, it will take to get for that approximate dwell time for that first peak if it's unretained. Now there are two ways of approaching methods for HPLC. There's isocratic method. That's when nothing changes for your mobile phase concentration. So you're running maybe 50-50 acetonitrile in water like we talked before with the polarity. Or you can have a gradient method. This is where you change the conditions. You usually go from um, more aqueous, so you start out with a high aqueous, high water content, and then you will gradually take this gradient up to a higher organic content, like maybe a higher acetonitrile content. And then you'll also have to program in a flush period where you run it at that high concentration of organic, and then you drop it back down to your original starting conditions, and you give your system that three minutes or however long your dwell time is to get back to where you started from. Then we have the chemistry of the stationary phase. This could be uh, anything from your C8, your C18, your phenyl, and it, all those other types of, of column stationary phases. These are actually bonded to your silica particle, your silica backbone. And these are just chains of eight carbons, 18 carbons. And there are usually some things called end caps. These are where the extra silanols that are part of your silica uh, particle are capped off so that there are not extra interactions happening between your sample and those empty spaces on your stationary phase. The type of stationary phase you're going to use depends on what your target is. If you're looking for polar samples, either acidic or basic, you might be doing maybe a C18 column. If you're doing more neutral samples or hydrophobic samples, maybe you're going to be using a phenyl or biphenyl column. If you're doing, um, you know, Normal phase chromatography, you're going to be using a cyano column or a silica or amino column instead. So your target is going to tell you what type of chemistry that you'll be using for your stationary phase. 
And then it also um, is a consideration for detectors as well. Your analyte is going to dictate what type of detector because not every analyte can be seen by every type of detector. Maybe if you want to use UV vis, you have to consider is there a chromophore? Is there something to be seen by UV vis? If you want to see it by mass spec, well, can the sample be ionized so you can uh, see it by mass spec? So you are going to choose your detector depending on your analyte, and it's going to all depend on the chemistry of that analyte. Let's talk about a very common detector, like UV-Vis. That's the ultraviolet and the visible spectrum of light. And that is that area of 10 uh, nanometers to about 1,000 nanometers, 800 nanometers. That is our range of what can be visible to the uh, human beings. And that's all of your, your colors, your Roy G. Biv, your red, orange, yellow, green, etc. So those are your visible light spectra, and then you have your ultraviolet spectra as well. Now, some chemical functionality actually have a UV spectra or a visible spectra. They have a wavelength which, which they absorb. So this is something that if you know you have this particular functional group, like a ketone, that one has an absorption max at 190 nanometers. So you can be sure that if you're ma monitoring 190 nanometers that you can then see that ketone, where maybe a nitrile or a uh, nitrate, it's 225, so you want to be monitoring 225. It's an alkene, it's uh, 171 is the absorption max, so you want to monitor 171. So you want to make sure that whatever your target is, that you're monitoring the correct um, wavelength for whatever your particular target analyte is. Also, you want to consider the proper solvents when you're doing UV-Vis. All the different solvents have different UV cutoffs. And if you are concerned, let's say you are doing that uh, ketone that we were talking about before, and you're going to be monitoring, one monitoring excuse me, 190, then you're not going to be wanting to use propanol, which has a UV cutoff of 205. So there might be some interferences there. Or hexane, which has a, which has a UV cutoff of 195 you're going to be wanting to, to look for something that has a different UV cutoff than what you are trying to, to monitor. If you are looking for um, something with a higher absorption, maybe you're looking for a naphthalene ring or you're looking for some other type of uh, you know, highly absorbing uh, functionality, then you can get away with using maybe something like the, um, the methanol at 205 or... Um, you know, water, which doesn't have a, a UV cutoff. So that, that's going to help you because you're not going to be overwhelming your UV-Vis detector at, with your solvent, and you're going to be able to see your functional uh, groups of your target. You should also know that when you're looking at color, what's what the color that is absorbed and the color that observed are, are, are opposites of each other. They're on the opposite end, ends of the spectrum. And most color falls between that 400 nanometer wavelength and that 700 nanometer wavelength. So at the other end, the, the 700, we're looking about reds being absorbed, so you're going to be observing blue and green. On the lower end, that's 400 to 435, violet's absorbed, so you're going to actually be seeing kind of a yellow-green color. So let's say you want to know, well, where do I start my analysis? My sample is green. I'm seeing a green sample. Well, that means that it is actually absorbing probably orange uh, or yellow or red in that kind of end of the spectrum. So you're going to want to be monitoring wavelengths that are higher in that 500 
an 80 to about 700 nanometer wavelength range, because that's where those particular colors are going to be observed. So now I hope you have a little bit of a better understanding on some of the basic chemical principles of chromatography, and I hope you'll join us again for another podcast on a, hopefully another interesting subject about chemistry. Thanks a lot. Specs Speak Science is presented by Specs Companies. Specs CertiPrep and Specs Sample Prep provide scientists with certified reference materials and sample preparation equipment for a diverse range of analytical techniques. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating the podcast and subscribing for future installments. Similar content, such as application notes, research studies, webinars, and more can be found at both specscertiprep.com and specssampleprep.com. Thank you for listening to Specs Speaks Science, and we look forward to bringing you future episodes.